What a privilege now for us to be able to open up God's Word to continue in our study of it. I invite you to take your Bible and open to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. This evening we will be working through the sixth stanza, which will be verses 41 through 48. Psalm 119, verses 41 through 48. If we're going to give a title for tonight, and if you're taking notes and you want to be helped in that way, tonight our message is entitled, Glued to God's Word. Glued to God's Word. Let's look to the Lord and ask for His help before we come to study this passage tonight. O great triune God, we humbly bow beneath and before your word, for this is your word. You, the great triune, almighty God, you have set aside your holy privacy and have spoken. You've revealed yourself and given to us in the Bible your very word what it is that we need to understand who you are, to understand who we are, to understand why we're here in this world, to understand and to reveal the problem that we recognize in this world, the problem that's within our hearts, the problem of sin. And then to understand the gracious work that you have provided by giving a Savior, your very Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who on the cross took the penalty and punishment for sin. That we don't have to be punished. But instead by trusting in this Savior, our sins can be forgiven in full. That you would grant new life that you would welcome us into your family and call us your son and daughter, that you would secure and provide for us a home with you forever in heaven, and even now in this life, be with us and help us for whatever it is that comes across our way. Oh God, we stop and we thank you. We praise you. And since this is your word, we look to you now as our teacher instruct us and teach us in the way we ought to go. We ask this for our Savior's sake. Amen. Psalm 119, verses 41 through 48, glued to God's word. Tonight we are afforded another opportunity to continue in our study of Psalm 119. To go further by means of this account in our investigation into the glory of God's Word, what this study and series is entitled. We've seen for the last several weeks, and we'll continue to see as we look to Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Psalter, that here is a majestic chapter with 22 different sections, each following the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. That whomever the writer is, he with all of his mental ability and mental skill would display for us how amazing God's word really is. You think of these 22 sections, each eight verses in length, like 22 instruments. 
each instrument playing its own piece, but you bring them all together, and what do we hear? Oh, a grand symphony. Proclaiming how great God's word is. Now, the same is true for the section in front of us tonight, verses 41 through 48, even though at first glance you may not suspect it, at least by means of your first glance if you were looking at the Hebrew account as it was originally written. For in this section, we come to the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, Maybe in your Bible, at the top of the section, you find three letters, either W-A-W, or maybe your translation says V-A-V. It's a Hebrew letter, either wow or vav. Wow, the older way of saying the letter. Vav, a more modern Hebrew way of saying the letter. The letter sort of looking like a shepherd's crook or a shepherd's staff. In fact, working through this passage reminded me of my time back in seminary. There were three main Hebrew professors, two of whom would pronounce this letter and teach, you are to say it the old way, wow. One, teaching that you ought to pronounce it the way people today would pronounce it and say vav. And the professor that I had, Dr. Murphy, He would regularly remind us that if we wanted to, in our second year of Hebrew, go to take a different professor, we then would enter into the kingdom of Vav. Or Dr. Murphy would say, or you could take him or take Dr. Barak, which was what he encouraged. And if you take Dr. Barak, he would say, uh, you take Dr. Barak because he taught Moses, and he taught Moses, it was wow. I know, a bit nerdy, but hey, that's what we experienced in seminary. But again, the letter, not most impressive. Why? Well, it's seen with how few Hebrew words actually begin with this letter. If you were to open up the standard uh, Hebrew lexicon, the acronym Hallet, a lexicon, sort of like a dictionary, you'd only count up 13 entries. Think of it like the English letter X. In fact, they did a search today. Uh, The fewest number of English words begin with the letter X. If you were to go to the Oxford English Dictionary, it would list about 400 words that begin with the letter X. Think then how much smaller, how much less impressive the irony even that it would be pronounced wow or vav. Yet so few words would begin with it. And we think, how then does the psalmist handle this? Again, it's an acrostic. Each section begins with, uh, takes a Hebrew letter, each verse, each sentence, starting with that letter in this impressive way. How does that happen if so few Hebrew words would begin with this letter? Uh, It's not impressive until you understand how this letter can function differently. In fact, this Hebrew letter can be used as it's attached to other words, and as it's attached to other words, it begins to function like a conjunction. 
Oh, of course, the schoolhouse rock jingle comes to mind. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Here, the psalmist employs it in a very overt way to connect every line, every sentence together. It's not as obvious just by means of our English translation. Admittedly, it would be a bit repetitive for every verse, 41, 42, all the way down through 48, each line beginning with and, may, and, so, and, so forth. And yet looking at it in the Hebrew, it's employed, it's used to bind, to bring together like links in a chain that everything here belongs together, that it's bonded, or rather, glued. The image here, what the psalmist displays, in fact, models for us, is how he was glued to God's Word. And by means of extension for us tonight, we're going to understand and see a bit more how our own lives can be glued to God's Word. The significance simply stated, as the commentator Motir said, the converted life is a life obsessed with revealed truth. That if you've been saved, if you consider yourself a Christian, a believer, your life ought to orbit around be vitally connected with this book, the Bible that God has given. Stated differently, for a believer, the Bible is everything. Or at least it ought to be. But admittedly, how quickly in our lives it isn't. That if tonight we were to take time with an open mic confession people going around and with the microphone speaking up honestly, I think many of us would admit readily we've forgotten the wonder of the word. If we were to go around, maybe a common uh, theme, a common excuse might be, well, it's the 21st century, my schedule's so full, there's just no time for Scripture. Could that be you tonight? We can be so busy, but have these other things begun to crowd out what ought to be the main thing? We're talking honestly here. How easy it can be to have the Bible displaced by means of competing interests, by means even of competing authorities. How easy it is for you and I to begin to look at the Bible as if it's merely our textbook. We come, we show up on a Sunday or on a Wednesday evening, we begin to view preaching as if it's just another lecture in the classroom. Someone stands behind the lectern, all right audience, all right class, open up the textbook. We open up the textbook, we sit, we take notes, time's up, class dismissed, textbook closed. And maybe for some it remains that way until the next time class is in session. 
like many with school, how hard it can be just to crack open the textbook, to review, to reflect, to apply. How that mindset can affect us and that can be how we begin to view the Bible. In fact, even thinking more broadly, taking a step back, often, often, what happens as we begin to think of our own lives and the way that we live as believers? You could think of it this way. The way that we live as believers, how life is, you could simply categorize it what is. We open the Bible And what we find displayed is what ought to be. Our life is what is. What we see in the Bible is what ought to be. Admittedly, there will always be a gap. But perhaps that gap begins to grow. The ideal, what God commands, what He calls us to for how we are to live in a manner to bring Him glory and to bless others what ought to be, but then we look at our lives, we see the way that we live, and that encroaching indifference at times to God's Word, the textbook closed, oh, that gap grows. But that gap can be closed. That gap can shrink by means of study and by means of prayer. In fact, even as we gather tonight, our prayer can be, God, would you help close that gap? That more and more our lives would reflect what ought to be. Tonight's section helps us in that regard. In verses 41 through 48, as we look at this psalmist and as he portrays, again, this this ideal, what ought to be, how our lives can be glued to God's Word, as we look at it, we're going to see at least three responses, three responses that can help us stay glued to God's Word. Again, and I employ that imagery very specifically because of the grammar that the psalmist employs with this letter. Wow, or vav. Let me put bluntly, it's as if by means of gorilla glue grammar, the psalmist is going to help us understand how our lives can stay so closely connected to what God says. The first response then found in verses 41 through 43. Again, a good opportunity for us tonight to assess where we might be, to think honestly before the Lord. God, am I merely viewing your word, this precious word, just like a textbook? Am I viewing it for the life-giving word that it is? Oh, Lord, how we need his help. So we, with the psalmist, acknowledge the first response. Verses 41 through 43 I need God's word. Oh, it is as simple as that. I need God's word. Right off the bat, verse 41 begins with the psalmist looking up to the Lord, offering up prayer to him. 
really a, a humble request. May your loving kindnesses come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. We don't know the identity of this psalmist, but it's safe to reason and safe to assume that based on even the rest of Psalm 119, the author here is not a brand new convert. The author of Psalm 119 is someone who's familiar with, well-versed in Scripture. Likely, he's walked with the Lord for many years. He understands that in the life of a believer, the life of faith, there are peaks and there are valleys. He knows at least a measure of this. And because of this, he understands in an increasing way how much he needs God and how much he needs God's word. He acknowledges that. He looks up to the Lord and he will even call upon him by means of his unique Old Testament covenant name. Oh Lord, oh Yahweh. This exclusive, unique name given only to his covenant people Israel. This name, I am what I am, uh, expressing this God's great self-sufficiency, that he is the great unchanging God, and this great God pledged to be with and to care for his own people. The God who has pledged himself, the God who has promised and covenanted to, and the psalmist then looks up to him, God, I am one of your children, I am belonging to your covenant people, if you have so pledged yourself to me, oh God, hear me, I look up to you, will you help me? He says, may your Loving kindnesses. Maybe your translation says mercies. Two things we need to point out. One, the Hebrew term, it's one of the most important Hebrew words in all of the Old Testament, that rich term, hased, God's rich, loyal covenant love. Ironically, the very first time used in Psalm 119. It'll be used more, but here's its first manifestation in this chapter. The reason why you come across translations and one might say loving kindnesses, another might say mercies, another might say graces, all because we in English have a a challenge trying to capture the richness of this term. And for those that belonged to this covenant, In the Old Testament, those that would identify with God, Yahweh, this faithful love, it was a loyal love, a merciful, gracious love, a committed love, we would even say exclusive and focused love. God reserved this love only for his covenant child. 
And this love flowing forth from Yahweh, the one who's unchanging, the one who's great and self-sufficient, no doubt then this love would be immutable, even impassable, perfect and unconquerable. And yet if you look closely, your translation translates it in the plural. The psalmist says it in the plural. As if his attempt to cry out to God and acknowledge, God, I need your many mercies. I need your daily mercies. Thinking even of the words of Lamentations chapter 3. Your mercies are new every morning. And here the psalmist, as simple as this truth is, this is where he begins. And he looks up to God and he asks God, will you send them? Will you give them? Adding the parallel thought in verse 41, may your salvation come according to your word, according to your promise. In fact, interesting again, the term salvation, also the first time it's mentioned in Psalm 119. We're going to see that a few times in this section. The psalmist brings them together, God's loving kindnesses and his salvation, all according to his promised word. What is it that he's getting at? I mean, has the psalmist been saved? Yes, And yet he's acknowledging, God, will you continue to keep me? Will you continue to preserve me? In fact, as one put it, it's as if God, he already has performed the great rescue in being saved from sin. But here the psalmist continues to acknowledge, God, I need your little rescues, your daily rescues. Maybe even captured in simply two words. Help me. Oh, he he begins, I need you and I need God's word. May you provide these things for me. This becomes all the more evident why he would ask this as our eyes go to verse 42. We see that he's under some pressure. Something we've seen before in Psalm 119, something good for us to always be reminded of. If you seek to be faithful to God, be assured it will draw hostility. There are always critics who come after Christians. The psalmist is on the receiving end of that pressure, this hostility and this reproach. In fact, the bond, the glue that would bring verse 41 and 42 together, he's saying, God, I need your word. Will you supply me with your help? Why? Verse 42, so I can be ready and so I can answer that on my mouth I'll have a word for the one who keeps reproaching me, the one who keeps harassing and attacking me. Oh, again, it always has been this way. It always will be this way. As Calvin said, we are taught that there will always be evil speakers 
who will not cease to defame the children of God. So the psalmist looks up to God, the God who hears and the God who helps, and he's asking God, would you so help me as I need your word? Supply me then with the very response I ought to have, specific to the reproach. In fact, you could even look at the remainder of verse 42 as if that is what the answer ought to be. That the one who reproaches me, that what's to be said back to him, I trust in God's word. I cling to, I hold it fast, set in a way, oh, it's characteristic of my life. I've pledged all, I've put all upon God's word. Even thinking in this world, there's so much that you and I can't trust So much even as time goes on and more news is leaked, our head spins. Who out there can we trust today? Oh, this God and his word and a world very unsure and filled with constant change. Here is a book that is constant and unchanging to which we can look, to which we can trust That's what the psalmist acknowledges. In fact, it brings to mind words later in the New Testament. 1 Peter 3.15. Do you remember that charge? Where Peter would remind us all, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Why? Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. That even today, how often we're on the receiving end of that reproach and hostility. I mean, it can be so clear and overt, could be subtle, yet always to be ready to give that answer that when someone sneers or another questions or someone asks, why is it that you're different? Why is it that you would think that? Why would you believe that? You really believe that? Isn't that just an old book written by men and you believe that? Oh, to be ready to say, yes, I do, yea, verily believe that. And let me give to you a reason for this hope that I have. In fact, if someone were to ask you that, would you be ready? Could you answer? As Charles Bridges would say, uh, even a stammering confession is better than silence. If we cannot say all we want of or for our Savior... Let us say what we can. Oh, let us be ready and let us say what we can. Brings to mind something even so simple like the account in John chapter 9. When Jesus would heal the man who was born blind. The man who was healed and the Pharisees then descend upon him and begin to question him and interrogate him. And this man born blind who's now healed and can see how he begins to receive this same reproach. 
And as simple as it is, as he would look at them in John 9, 25, he says, one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. The response could be as simple as that. The psalmist then offers up this response and cries out that he needs God's word and asks that God would supply him with what he needs so that he can be ready to give an answer. And then in verse 43, it's as if he ups the intensity. Verse 41 was a humble request. Verse 33, 43, it's now a desperate plea, dramatic even. The psalmist says, do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. I wait for your ordinances, Lord. I wait for your judgments. I mean, with all that he has, he's crying out to God, would you remember me? Would you help me? Would you supply me with your word because I so desperately need it? I'm trusting in you, God. I'm leaning upon your word. I will even wait patiently for you to righteously act and judge. For you to decide the case. For you to resolve this situation. Our response like this, he's acknowledging, I need God's word. Is that your response? Is that your normal response? Is that your daily response? I mean, do you look upon these verses, 41 through 43, and identify with what the psalmist is saying? Do you understand a bit of that struggle in daily tension, even so desperately to cry out for God's help? Or do you know nothing of this dependence, of this desperation? We need to be reminded here tonight, often, often, daily, it is this fight. It is this struggle. But we do well to remember the words of our Savior, man does not live on bread alone, but on what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You and I need God's word daily more than we need food, more than we need drink, more than we even need air. The psalmist gets that and he responds that way. And by extension, if we can begin to grasp this and if we can begin to respond this way, what is it going to do? Oh, it's going to help us stay glued to God's word. That's the first response. But then, again, connected by means of the grammar, we move to our second response. Verses 44 through 46. First, the psalmist says, I need God's word. Next, he acknowledges, I have God's word. Oh, he he, he takes a step back here. 
He begins to remind himself the blessing, the gift, the grace of what he has. That God has given his revelation. That the psalmist here can acknowledge, and I'm in possession of it. That God hasn't hidden it. God hasn't placed it down in the depths of the ocean for you and I to board some treacherous vessel to try to treasure hunt for. God hasn't reserved his word just for those who are on the inn, the secret society, for the select few. No, no, publicly, accessibly, he's given his word. And the psalmist thinks upon that. He brings it together. In fact, it flows so easily for him. I have God's word, and because I have it, I'm going to keep and obey it. Oh, he launches out in these verses, so I will keep your law continually, forever and ever. And I'll walk at liberty. I'll seek your precepts. I'll speak of your testimonies before kings, and I will not be ashamed. He acknowledged, I need it. Now he acknowledges, I have it. Why does he have it? So I can obey it and keep it. And the excitement begins to build here. You look at verse 44. We're looking at him and we're thinking, what? Three terms so similar that, okay, you're going to keep and obey God's word continually, forever, and ever? Is this just hyperbole, something over the top? No, for the psalmist, this is his real desire. In fact, the wisdom here, I think it even shows us the difficulty to persevere with all the challenges we face, how we ought to cry out and with all resolve seek, with all of God's help and grace to obey his word daily, regularly, continually, oh, even forever and ever. It does show the difficulty of perseverance simply because if there is no effort, if there is no perseverance, you know what happens? You and I drift. We do nothing Well, something's still happening. We drift away from the Lord. I mean, we'll put it like this. Maybe this can be helpful even for the younger people in here today. Maybe even some of you teenagers uh, beginning to drive. There is no coasting or cruise control in the Christian life. No autopilot. Efforts required with God's gracious help, and it's always worth it. And in fact, here, it's not even just wishful thinking. This will one day become reality. Before we know it, if we know this God, we will be with him in his home called heaven, and there for all eternity, we will keep, 
We will obey. We will have always and forever his word. They're serving him without sin, without inconstancy, without weakness, all without end. In fact, the poet Addison put it this way, through all eternity to thee, a joyful song I'll raise, but oh, eternity's too short to utter all thy praise. It will be too short. And yet now in the present, with his help and his blessing, that we have his word, we can then keep it, we can then obey it. Verse 45, we'll even take this thought further. As we seek to obey it, again, this response helping us stay glued close to his word, that we don't drift, that we don't wander. In fact, the blessing here, he says so wonderfully, as I keep it and as I obey it, verse 45, I will walk at liberty. Stated literally, I will walk in a wide open place. What is that all about? What imagery is he drawing upon? In fact, what is this liberty, this freedom he speaks of? I think it's helpful to remember what life was before you and I were saved. In fact, we'll put it this way. You you could be here tonight and readily acknowledge, "I, I know that I am not a Christian, Here's what your life is. And if you are in Christ and you have been saved, to remember this is what life once was. Before salvation, you and I thought we were free. In fact, we often reveled in it. The reality the Bible would teach, you and I were quite enslaved. Enslaved to what? Romans chapter 6 will take and personify what it was we were enslaved to. Three letters, S-I-N, sin. We thought we were free. In fact, you and I were trapped in an illusion, a matrix of freedom. All the while, willing slaves of this cruel master, sin. As the church father Augustine would record, I gave my will to mine enemy, and he made a chain and bound me with it. That's how we lived life. We thought we were free, but we were enslaved to sin with whatever temptation would arise. We would give in. We would pursue it. We were trapped in prison. But then, what happened? What is even the good news of the gospel? As the hymn lyric would say, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Oh, we were saved Saved from our sins, saved from this cruel master. Saved for what? Saved to now have a new master, 
a new Lord, a new God, a good Savior, to live for him, to serve him as willing, loving servants or slaves. In fact, this good master, the God of the Bible, as he saves people into his kingdom, he doesn't just leave them to themselves to figure out life. Oh no, he gives us his word. He gives it to us to help us understand how we are to live in this world. He gives his good word. He gives his good law. And in fact, now our relationship to it has changed. And now, having been saved, there is freedom. There is liberty to do what? To do what we ought. To do what God commands of us. We can now obey it. In fact, as we said in the beginning, there there is still that tension. Our lives and what is and what God commands and what ought to be. But at least by his grace, we're helped more and more to obey what he says. Again, not in order to be saved. No, no. In response to having been saved. Out of love and gratitude for what he's done. Now there's no longer liberty to sin, but rather liberty of holiness. Now we seek to obey God's word. And now we understand his word is good. It is right. It is true. It is safe. Thus to follow it. To obey it. We begin to then grasp what the psalmist says. I walk at liberty. I walk in a wide open place. It's what older Christians would refer to the king's highway. That's now what we walk upon. Before, and we understand, of course, now the way of the transgressor is hard. The life of an unbeliever, what a challenge. To live in disobedience, how hard. Like a poorly paved, windy mountain road with no guardrail. Compared to the king's highway, God's word, wide open, smooth, safe, secure. As I obey this, God protects me. I know exactly what I am to do, how I am to live, what I am to say, what I ought to think, what I am to believe, what I ought to desire, where to place my hope. Everything is here. The king's highway is the best engineering. It is smooth, it is pleasant, it is good. In fact, God's word now in the life of a believer begins to function like a map where we know exactly how we can live for and honor the Lord, how we can love God and love our neighbor. And that's what the psalmist is after. That's, that's 
Even as he's reveling in the fact that he has God's word, that even prompts him again. That's why he seeks it. That's why it's the joy of his study. Again, quoting Calvin, If any man yield implicit obedience to God, he will receive this as his reward, that he shall walk with a calm and composed mind. And should he meet with difficulties? He'll find the means of surmounting them. Oh, but you or I could sit here and even thinking upon this, recognize, yes, but but I fall short. I know what God commands. I know what ought to be, but the gap is so great in my life. And as I see that, I'm convicted. I mean, isn't that true for each one of us? Pastors included? Isn't that why then we ought to fall on our knees and in a new light even this evening give praise to God for such a mighty Savior? A Savior who not only rescues us from the penalty for breaking and disobeying this word that He has done, but even to provide the very gift of His righteousness his perfect life of obedience to this word that he gives graciously and freely. We don't work for it. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. But we cry out, be merciful to me. And he gives it. And now, having been accepted in the beloved, we're no longer under the curse or condemnation of this word. In fact, now this poor, weak inconsistent obedience that we offered, so puny, so mixed, so incomplete. Yet this God in Christ looks upon it, takes it, accepts it, and treasures it. Oh, to then grasp that, to then look upon this word and to see that I have it. And that it can function as this wide open place where I can now walk and live at liberty. That helps us stay close and stay glued to the word. In fact, if we follow the pattern, follow the connections here, acknowledging that we need it, acknowledging that we have it, and acknowledging that we have it by obeying it. Now, verse 46, I mean, we could find ourselves in the audience of a king questioning us, why do you believe this? What hope do you have? And we're ready and prepared to give an answer to speak God's testimonies before kings and not to be ashamed. You think, how is that possible to stand before such a a powerful human? We could stand before such a powerful human, but as we grow in knowing who this God is and cultivate a greater fear of Him, caring more about what He thinks than what it mere human things, that begins to put out of our heart and even suffocate that concern and fear of man that we would not be ashamed. 
You say, really? Oh, really? You remember Daniel? Over the whole course and season of his life, when he's young, middle age, and even in old age, before Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 2, before Belshazzar, Daniel chapter 5, before Darius, Daniel chapter 6, how he's quick and ready to speak of his trust in the Lord. Think about the Apostle Paul. Acts 24, he speaks before Felix. Acts 25, he speaks before Festus. Acts 26, he speaks before Agrippa. And then to think how he's eager to go to Rome, ground zero of ungodliness where Caesar lives. Why? Romans 1, 15 through 16. For my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I mean, that, that, that's what happens. That, that's what's cultivated in the heart. In fact, for you and I just to stop and think, we may not even stand before great kings, but before lesser people. It could be our family, could be our could be our co-workers. And the spotlight turns to us. Are we going to be ashamed of this God who has given and spoken his word? Are we going to be ashamed of our Savior who himself was not ashamed to call us his brethren? Oh, may it not be. May then instead our lives be so closely glued to God's word that you and I, if we are going to stay glued to it to acknowledge I need God's word, I have God's word. And the third and final response, verses 47 and 48. In fact, the, the rhythm here, I need it, I have it, and oh, I want God's word. The glue of the grammar, binding and building these thoughts, feeling it all up to this point. In fact, here as the psalmist closes this section, he employs such strong, strong language. I shall delight in your commandments which I love. I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. It's as if he now employs his whole inner man, all that once was employed towards sin, his former master, now is employed, now all redirected, his inner affections, fueling the very engine of his actions. I shall delight in your commandments. Delight myself in your commandments. The intensity here, the psalmist is trying to get across to us. There is such ardent affection for God's word. 
He sees, he knows, he's tasted, he delights. He says, oh, these commandments which I love. I love them. In fact, again, the first noteworthy example in this chapter of even speaking of God's word in this way. He'll repeat it again from here on, but here the first appearance two times. I love, I love, I love your word, O Lord. Again, we can look at this and think, but this is just so foreign. It might be, but why not cry out to God to help close the gap? Maybe we sit here and we scratch our heads. Why is he so even emotionally obsessed with Scripture? Why would he want the word this badly? Because it gives joy, it gives reward, it gives pleasure. Pleasure, you say, isn't that bad? Oh, listen closely to Charles Bridges, the wise counsel that he gives. Long ago, he wrote these words. Has Satan engrossed all pleasure into his service? Are there no pleasures beside the pleasures of sin? The delights of holiness go deeper than sensual pleasures. And then he says, if the gospel separates the heart from sinful delights... It is only to make room for delights of a more elevated, satisfying, and enduring nature. What is he saying? He's saying you and I get duped into thinking that all the joy, all the fun, all the pleasure is reserved if we follow sin and Satan. And admittedly, there is pleasure in sin. The author of Hebrews tells us it's passing. But built into following God's word, obeying it because it's God's good gift, what happens? Someone who's saved, someone who's converted, begins to understand it is good, it is right, it is a source of delight. And as we're saved from our sin, as Bridges says, the gospel helps us to turn away from these empty, fleeting pleasures that sin offers to what? To make room for elevated, satisfying, enduring delights. What God has put in his word. As so many Christians have said, the more we grow in holiness, the more we really ought to be growing in happiness. Because we see again, this word is good and right and safe and true. It puts us in a wide open place to walk freely at liberty. Again, not, not doing whatever we want to do. No, no, we've been saved and rescued from that. Now we get to do what we ought to do, what we were made to do, to glorify and enjoy our creator forever. 
that delighting in and finding pleasure in knowing and obeying God's word, it is far better, it is longer lasting, and in fact, it is to be had in abundance compared to the passing pleasure of sin. And as Bridges is getting that, that greater love begins to put out of our heart the appeal, the attraction towards that lesser love that sin offers. That's what the psalmist is getting at, so much so he says in verse 48, I will lift up my hands. Now, some of you might be excited about that, maybe from your prior church experience. The lifting up of the hands appears several times in the Bible. Sometimes it's used, someone raising their hand as if they're swearing or taking an oath or making a promise. Sometimes it's used to speak of blessing or a benediction that's being pronounced. Sometimes it's used of a physical manifestation of how we're praying before the Lord. But here, it is different. Here, think a young child who wants dessert. You think of a young child, they hear there are extra chocolate chip cookies that they can have. I mean, any parents experience this? The smile, the elation, the desperation, the beeline, suddenly you realize, oh, they were hearing all along. They make their way into the kitchen, and if they're young and small and little, what do they do? They put up their hands because they so desperately want it. That's what the psalmist is saying. That's how desperately he wants God's word. Why? He loves it. And no doubt because he loves it, that's going to occupy his thoughts. You think about what you love. He loves God's word, so he spends his time meditating and thinking upon it. This is the psalmist and the three responses that he has to God's word that's keeping him glued closely to God's word and no doubt glued closely to the God of the word. This is what he recognizes. This is how he responds. He needs God's word. He has and obeys God's word. He wants God's word. And not just the word, but the very God who's given it. Maybe the question tonight for us could be as simply stated, how will you or I respond? Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage tonight. That some of the words here, they do confront us. We're stopped in our tracks as we look at what the psalmist wants, how he lives, how intensely he longs for your word. Before you, Lord, we acknowledge often in our own experience, that's not how we long for your word. Often other things occupy our thoughts. Often other hobbies or interests, that's what we long for. That's what we want desperately. Lord, may you use tonight to bring us back. Forgive us for the ways that we are falling short. 
Use this text to renew us. That's our prayer. That we would be brought back to this path to see that your word is good and it is a gift and that you have graciously provided us all that we need for life and for godliness. And God, for any here tonight who does not yet know you as Lord and Savior, who has not cried out to you, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I've lived my life thus far for myself and for sin. Forgive me, God. Would you open up their heart? Would you open up their eyes to see your greatness and glory? Would you show them Christ, the Savior that you've provided? That they would even be clear that all they do is cry out to you to repent from their sin, to turn from it, and to turn to you and to believe the good news that Christ died for our sins. Perform that miracle, Lord. We ask this for our Savior's sake. Amen.